All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I am not at home. How are you? Where are you? Where are you guys? What have you been doing? What's going on? Are you traveling? I've been traveling so fucking much. I don't even, uh, I, I don't know if I've had enough or I, I love it. I don't, I can't. This one's a long one. Coming over to Europe, being in New York for a few days, doing London, doing uh, Dublin, actually having days to uh, to hang out. I, I want it to be great. I, I think it's been good. It's been very busy. But look, let me ramble about that in a second. Today on the show, I talked to Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. Yeah, the guy that talked to me about my roots, the guy from Finding Your Roots, that guy. He's a scholar, a literary critic, a filmmaker, a historian. He's a professor at Harvard University. And, uh, and he hosts that show, Finding Your Roots. And he's got this new documentary series on PBS. It's called Making Black America. And I watched a few episodes, and I am constantly amazed at, at everything I do not know. I do not know so many things. It's so fucking disturbing to me sometimes that I, th- I feel like I have a general sense of things, a general education of things. I find that I've been interested and in put stuff into my brain and, and learn new things. But until you really put things into historical context and at least expose yourself to facts about how shit went down one you know, one day after the next year to year when and how and why uh in a thorough way what do you really know you know these general ideas you know these general i know general things about the black community but i don't know the evolution of those communities and how they were built and how the the entire black business world and system uh, was created in in uh, you know post reconstruction during the failed reconstruction. I it's just fascinating, and there's part of me that thinks, well, I should know. Why don't I know this? Well, I wasn't taught it, and oddly, that's exactly what they're not going to teach in red states because school boards are shutting them down from teaching that. It's part of the history, and there's part of my history I don't know. It's all. As I get older, I realize I don't know a lot of stuff, and I kind of spin around with the stuff I do know. Uh, I add new things. I do. I'm learning things. I retain enough of it to uh, to say, like, "Oh, I heard about that," and uh, right, I saw a thing in that. Isn't that have to do with this? Right, that was that thing that was kind of that was like the thing that was uh, happened after that other thing, right? But I mean, who has? the kind of memory retention. I mean, I'm getting older. So as I put new stuff in shit is, is, is draining out. I mean, I just, it's unreal to me and I'm not even at this point, I'm not even being nostalgic in terms of my life. I'm just sort of trying to, you know, go through the bag and hold on to stuff, pull stuff out that I can look at it and, and, and sort of, uh, Put it on the shelf or, or let it go. And there's just some things that's just gone. There's like an entire wall missing from my memory. So what else am I going to do here? What else have I done here? Jeremy Strong gave me some restaurant recommendations. I already went to one, an Otto Lingi restaurant, because I have his cookbook, which is beautiful. And then I went and had the food. It was good. Um, I'm going to probably get some Indian food. Last night, this was kind of interesting. Um, Helen Hunt reached out to me 
because she had listened to the episode I did with Michael Morris, who was the director over at the Old Vic. It turns out that um, Helen Hunt is in a show there right now called Eureka Day, I believe it was the name of the play. And she said, look, I know you're going to be in town. Why don't you come see this play? And I went to see it. I haven't seen I went with my manager, Kelly, uh, and I went to see a play last night. It, it's been, see, like, this is, what's, this is what's happening. This is what I make sure that I do when I go away, especially to these cities that have something to offer. I go to the theater if I can. I go see art if I can. I go, you know, get good meals if I can. And I get out in the world. So I went to this play, Eureka Day, which I have to assume will eventually hit Broadway because it's just too tight and too relevant and kind of cleverly handled. Uh, It's a play. It all takes place at a progressive, I think, uh, elementary school uh, in Berkeley, California. It's the board of directors, the the few parents in charge and the, the head of the school and some of the teachers. Um, you know, is it's like four or five, five characters, and it, it is able to deal with all of the things that we've sort of been dealing with in the cultural discourse around, uh, you know, point of view, opinion, vaccine, and it was it was you know it takes place in 2017 and revolves around a mumps outbreak at a progressive school, so it really kind of has the arc. Of uh, and it's very there's some extremely funny and touching moments in it. And Helen Hunt's great. Mark McKenney from Kids in the Hall is in it. He's great. The other performances are great. I, I don't mean not to know them, but I have to assume that this is like a sort of test run, and it'll make it to uh, to Broadway. I, it was nice to see uh, Helen, who I hadn't seen since I talked to her, and Mark McKenney, who I don't think I've ever talked to uh, on the podcast. Isn't he a missing kid? I do know him. The play was good, and it sort of inspired me to, you know, think about doing a play. That would be something I haven't thought to do in a while. Maybe I should make myself available to that, because I got to be honest with you, one of the problems with being sort of not so much a homebody, but a guy who's prone to panic when he's away too long for one reason. I don't know how people do it with kids. I don't know how people do it with farms. You know, and I, I guess, you know, you just kind of look out for yourself and go do what you got to do. But the, the, the worry element, I guess not everybody does that. I guess people put people into place, which I have, or put things into place or work shit out or make things, make sure things are taken care of and just kind of do their life. I have to assume that whatever is wrong with my brain in this area is what keeps me from, I don't know, what, from being a, a global superpower? I don't know. Uh, it something it's holding me back from something maybe enjoying life and travel but i'm going to do it i'm going to get out there today today i do it's uh t- well it's going to be yesterday by the time you hear this but i'm going to do a live wtf tonight with david Badil. we're going to get into the jewish thing as i do occasionally and as he's made a life of as of late and i don't know him I've got interviews this week. There's an outside chance. Ah, don't mention it. I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to mention who I'm going to interview because we don't know how it's all going to go. And I don't want people going, what happened to that? I, it didn't happen. So you'll just have to wait. You'll just have to wait. Okay? 
All right? Yes, I'm talking it out. I got to go back. I am going to go back. So I don't know what's going on here. That's the other thing. It's like I am so immersed in the cultural and political issues and and, uh, environmental issues of America. I barely can keep up with that. And London and England has a totally different spectrum of, of problems and politics and things I don't understand. It makes me feel a little bizarre in, in terms of like, should I know? Aren't there things I should know? Is this more that I should know? How much can I contain in my brain? Did I already blow it with the knowing stuff? Have I blown it for the knowing? All I know is that Kit wanted some a souvenir commemorating the passing of the queen. And I've got her many because I just have stores full of that. It's not like you can go to a nice store to get touristy bullshit. You go to a bullshitty touristy store, which there's one right down here in Piccadilly Circus, and I bought a bunch of uh, stuff, a bunch of queen stuff for Kit. Yeah, that's some British shit right there. So anyway, here we go. Okay, Henry Louis Gates. Uh, this documentary is an important documentary because it doesn't deal with, I feel like there's been many docs and movies I've seen dealing with the the sort of slavery experience or the Underground Railroad experience. This doc series that he's made, Making Black America, is really about you know how black communities put themselves together uh, through business, through uh, fraternal orders, through uh, uh, organizations of women, through uh, politics. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a look into a world that I, I knew nothing about, and I'm assuming that many people uh, certainly white people don't know about, but it was it was very informative and mind-blowing, really. It airs Tuesdays on PBS stations nationwide. You can also stream it on PBS digital platforms. It's called Making Black America. I will now talk to uh, Henry Louis Gates and try to deter him from uh, going over my genealogy again. You know, I, I often think of your, uh, your uh, the three generations yeah. on the Finlandia in from Antwerp in 1920. Is that where it was? On your mom's side, yeah. Oh, wow. The ones from Galicia. Galicia, yeah. yeah. Because I, well, I want to put this on tape. We're on. Oh, we are? Yeah. No, I often think of the, what's unusual about your family tree. Yeah. And your family's experience is that... Um, Three generations came together on the same boat. Right. In 1920. From Jehovich. 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 Yeah, Jehovich. Yeah, Jehovich. Yeah. And I I have to tell so many people that only one generation came. Yeah. Or only one individual came. Right. And a sibling left a sibling behind. And then that was the wrong choice. Heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? It screws people up? Well, no, because the Nazis would end up, right. you know, killing the person who stayed behind. Yeah, we we avoided Nazis, but I, I think back there there were some Russian problems. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah, Golda Fear. Golda Fear. F-E-E-R. That's my grandmother. Yeah, yeah. that's right. We're well, doing it again. You want, Should I go get the tree? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Golda came with her mother, Molly, yeah. and her grand, grandmother, right. Perla, in yeah. Three of her Perla. Yeah. And that's what makes your family interesting, your family history, because- 
they escaped as a unit yeah <clears throat> and rather than singly so many people come to the united states alone look right? yeah i'll tell you something i've been watching <clears throat> that ken burns america and the holocaust bit on, it's uh, tough to watch it's not always a tough to watch but i watched uh, a few episodes of yours and you know as a, a a kind of like relatively intelligent white guy i don't know any of this shit <laughs> I, I really you know like as a jew I, I, I had no idea how dug in uh, anti-immigrant policy was and, and always has been. And, and when watching yours, uh, you start to really realize that whatever problems we're having now uh, are, are, are the exact same fights that have existed since the beginning of the country almost. No, it's true. But I'm, uh, I was so inspired by Ken's. Yeah. That, you know, when I first heard another documentary on the Holocaust, and I happened to watch as many documentaries about the Holocaust sure. as I possibly can. Um, I thought, well, I wonder what Ken could say that's new. And what was new was the history of anti-Semitism in America right. in general, and more specifically within the government, I mean, yeah. even Roosevelt's government. Right. The State Department, he had no power over a completely white supremacist State Department. Absolutely. Shamelessly white supremacist. Yeah. And... Uh, just proud of it yeah and they they didn't even lose sleep but th but that's what's happening now like there's so many people that like when i watched the first two episodes of yours i realized like this is exactly what red state school boards are trying to keep out mm -hmm. when it's not it's not uh, the framing of the black experience as as slaves or as an alternate history but it's literally the history of american people that is not the narrative that they grew up with. Absolutely. You know, I tell my students, I teach a large, co-teach with yeah. Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, a large um, lecture course at Harvard, Intro to Afro, I call it, Introduction to African American yeah. Studies. And early on in the semester, I tell the students, there are two streams flowing constantly under the floorboards of Western culture yeah. and American culture. Yeah. One is a stream of anti-black racism, the other one right next to it is a stream of anti-Semitism. And they are activated by the same forces, which are when you strip away all of the apparent causes, yeah. excuses, yeah. explanations, yes. gets down to economics. It all flows from economic insecurity, economic jealousy, um, and economic motiva motivation. In the case of African Americans being reduced to commodity themselves, which right. is, think about what is the... Um, ultimate formula for commodification it is uh, blackness and slavery you know you were an an economic entity yeah. colored black right and you were an economic entity because you were black a a, a working object uh, absolutely and with Jews, they didn't suffer enslavement except a long time ago, as we know from Go Down Moses and, right. and Pharaoh. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, but I always felt uncomfortable when Jews kind of uh, played that card because it's like it's not in our experience. It's a, it's a biblical history. I mean, you know, the experience of, of a modern Jew is genocide. Genocide. Yeah. It is six million yeah. of your brothers and sisters. Yeah, who just, just a few years ago. Right. And all killed in just a few years. It's sure. it's in, I can't okay it, it's so, but yeah but how's the what, explain the economic part of the Jewish thing the Jews have all the money right yeah they they are <laughs> they are you know Hitler Hitler says we can balance our checkbook if we just confiscate all the property of the Jews and kill them yeah you know, and and take the gold in their teeth and all of uh, everything that they possibly could um, own that can be converted into cash and that's what he did but like I like in watching your show like what in terms of your 
uh, your coming of age, right? And and you deciding, you know, what your role is uh, in in academics in the black community and and just your your life's work. You know, where does that start for you? Where I mean, where did you grow up? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, you're going to do my roots? Sure. I'm Mark Marion. I would like to. <laughs> I don't have I don't have the research, but I, I can get it out of you maybe. You got you got me. I was born in Piedmont, West Virginia, uh-huh. which is a paper mill town. Population 2500 in the year in which I was born, 1950. Uh-huh. 386 black people in right. that, that year. Yeah. It's an Italian Irish Italian paper mill town. Yeah. And my family as it turns out has lived in a 30-mile radius of this little town for the last 200 years. Hmm. But I didn't know that until we started filming Finding Your Roots and our genealogical team traced my ancestors. Were you the first <clears throat> guest? I Actually, in the first season, in the first iteration of the series, I only did African Americans. Yeah. Because that was my brand, right? Yeah. It was called African American Lives. <laughs> and I was trying to be the genealogical guru for right. other African Americans. Okay. Because um, I wanted to do Alex Haley one better. Yeah. I wanted to do what Alex Haley purported to do. Right. I wanted to do that in a laboratory in a test tube. Yeah. For a lot of different people. Yeah. For, yeah. I wanted to do it only for African Americans right. first. Because but that's that, what I mean. Yeah. But there's a full range, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Where, where people come from and well, what they and I found out, the more I learned, um, how various that range yeah. uh, is. But let me go back to yeah. Piedmont and bring yeah. me back to yeah. that. So I was born in 1950. I had an older brother, Paul, yeah. uh, who's an oral surgeon. He's five years older. And um, my dad worked two jobs at the paper mill in the daytime, West Vaco Paper Company. And he was a janitor at the telephone company uh, in the evening. Yeah. My mom who studied to be a seamstress in Atlantic City in a vocational school, um, uh, was a housewife from the time that my brother and I yeah. um, uh, were born. Yeah. Because that's the way it was. My dad worked two jobs, so right. my mom didn't have to. Sure. And because he had two jobs, we were, we had the most comfortable existence of all the black people in Piedmont, West Virginia. <laughs> Why? You know? Cause he, <laughs> well, because he had double income. Oh, okay. Not not because he was like he didn't he didn't come home and yell at you. No, no, right, he didn't. Right. No, no, no. He didn't do any of that. Yeah. He and so I was always raised um, to think of myself as privileged because vis-a-vis all the other black people in town, I was right. Right. Yeah. So. And um, my family had a long history in this area. Again, I didn't know how long. Right. Piedmont is in the Potomac River Valley in the Allegheny Mountains. Okay. Halfway between Pittsburgh and Washington. I like Pittsburgh. It's not exactly a hotbed of black culture when you think about, you know, the hills of West Virginia. (laughs) Sure. But that's where my family um, was from. And um, that's interesting. So how did they get there? I'm going to tell you that. But I was raised to be a doctor. From uh-huh. my mother, God bless her soul. Uh, in heaven, there was a father, son, the Holy Ghost, and a medical doctor. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and all smart little color boys and color girls, yeah. as we were back then, yeah. were raised to be doctors. So Skippy Gates was raised to be a doctor. So for Christmas, I got Stephanie. How'd you get that nickname? Um, when mom was pregnant, she yeah. was reading a book, and the character was Skippy or Skipper. Yeah. And so that was a, a name she liked. <laughs> and what, my family's very big on, on uh, nicknames. Henry Louis Gates Sr. Yeah was Heine, because he was born in 1913, a uh-huh. German you okay. know, variation. All right. My mother was called Pun, because okay. she liked language so much, uh-huh. so she was Pun. Paul Edward, named for the two grandfathers, Yes, my brother. Yeah. That's, that's our family tradition. Yeah. 
um, was Rocky because okay. she was reading a book five years before with a character named Rocky. Okay, <laughs> and you're Skip, and then I, then I was Skip. So it took me a long time <laughs> yeah. not to become a doctor. I mean, a very long time. Not all through Yale, I was going to be a doctor, and I got a fellowship to go to England to Cambridge, and it was there that I realized that I wanted to be a scholar. I wanted to be a professor. So when you got now, a premium, obviously, in, in something about the, the, the documentary series, you, The Making of Black America, that the evolution of the just the educational structure for, for African-Americans was all self-driven. Mm -hmm. and, and I imagine that would be the generation, like, maybe two before you? Well, look, take my brother, born in 1945. Yeah. He went to the colored schools. Right. He went to um, Lincoln was the segregated elementary school mm -hmm. and Howard High School was the segregated high school. So he started at the segregated school. Brown v. Boards in 1954 when I was four. Yeah. For reasons, Mark, that nobody knows. The white people who, you know, dominated the vote in Mineral County, West Virginia, voted to integrate the schools immediately. And so our school system integrated completely without Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, without a peep in 1955. And I started at the white school in 1956. I'll tell you a funny story about that. My dad, it was hilarious. Yeah. Uh, my dad was one of the great storytellers of all. My dad made Red Fox look like Undertaker. Oh, really? <laughs> he was hilarious. <laughs> so my dad sat me down yeah. the day before I started at the white school yeah. on August 31st, 1956. Yeah. And he took me in our formal living room. I mean, our house is as big as your your yeah. uh, studio here, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we had a formal living room where the the uh, the furniture I remember it covered was, in plastic red, was covered in plastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know who my mom thought was going to ever come to visit. The Queen of England was going <laughs> to yeah, drop yeah, in, yeah. right? Or the president. But, did, is that when the plastic comes off? I never knew when it comes. It off. never it came ne off. Never came. It off. never came yeah. off. It disintegrated. I went up in smoke. Yeah. So my dad took me into our formal living yeah. room. And he said, boy, he called me boy. He lived to be 97 and a half. He called me boy to the day he died. And he said, boy, it's something that uh, I need to explain to you. Yeah. And he said, sit down. And I thought I was in trouble because yeah. nobody ever went in that room. <laughs> and uh, I said, what is daddy? Terrified. And he said, you're going over to the white school tomorrow. And there's something you need to know. I said, what's that? He said, well, there are two kinds of white people. And I go, two kinds of white people. Now, I grew up in this white town, right? Yeah. This Irish Italian sure. paper mill town. Yeah. So I saw white kids all the time. Yeah. And I didn't know they came in kinds. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I go, well, how do you tell the difference? He said, that's why I brought you into this room. He yeah. said, they're the Italians and the Irish. And uh, there's a crucial difference between them. I go, okay, what's the key? And he said, the Irish have names that begin with O, and the Italians have names that end with O. <laughs> and it's true. And that's the secret to my success all these years. So I started in a fully integrated school in rural West Virginia, and I never had any experience of racism by any T. I was elected class president. But now, now do you feel like row. that? Why, why does that feel like an anomaly to me? It is an anomaly, particularly when you see how how strongly my fellow West Virginians came out for Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> and um, you, you associate West Virginia with um, when you see Joe Manchin up there. Yeah, you associate it with being very conservative, but it wasn't when I was growing up, and it was very liberal about race. Wait, do you think that was because that you know that those that those other two communities were only a generation or two away from the immigrant experience? 
Well, the, the motto of West Virginia is um, mountaineers are always free. And those mountains, there's a kind of rugged individualism. Okay. Sounds corny, yeah. but it's true. And it's in our DNA. In fact, I tell people when I'm interviewed that growing up in West Virginia was as important to my identity formation as being an African-American. Mm. Uh, because I was very much a West Virginia. I grew up hunting. I grew up fishing. The first day of deer season was a holiday. When you're 12, you got a 410. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. a country boy. Yeah. And that's just the way it was. Um, Did you want that out of you at some point? <laughs> no, no, I love it. I, I like to vacation at the beach, yeah. but not in the mountains, because <laughs> I saw the mountains every day till yeah. I went off to Yale when I was 18 years old. So now the Yale thing, now, was that uh, always the school you wanted to go to? Or how did that work? Well, I was um, raised to be a doctor. and uh, What does that mean, though? It was just pum- pummeled into your head that yeah, you're going to be a doctor? I was going to be a doctor. The teacher that, said I was going to be a doctor. The Your uh, brother's a doctor. My brother. So they got one. Years, they got one. Okay. And uh, I w- if you ask me, I was just going to be a doctor. Yeah, That's it. Sure. So now I went through two phases of interest in college. And yeah. it's funny because we just... Uh, presented, we ju- I just presided over the Hutchett Center Honors at Harvard. I'm the director of my day job of the of the greatest center for the, the research in African, Afro, Afro-Latin American, African-American culture. It's called the Hutchins Center, yes. endowed by my friend Glenn Hutchins and his yeah. wife, Debbie Hutchins, the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. Yeah. And our big annual ceremony is to pick seven individuals um, to present the Du Bois Medal in honor of W.E.B. Du Bois, the first black man to get a Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1895. Yeah. 1,200 people um, were there, and Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was yeah. one of our honorands. And it made me remember that um, when I was a early teenager, I wrote to UCLA yeah. to get the, the course catalog. Yeah. You know, back in the day, yeah. course catalogs were... Like little books. Yeah. And I got UCLA's because of Kareem. Kareem was there and I was going to go to UCLA and they had a great medical school. He's a thoughtful guy, intellectual guy. He is. He's yeah. an old friend and someone I admire very much. I mean, Kareem had even studied Arabic at Harvard in, in summer school. So um, I went through this whole first phase. I mean, I also wrote to Michigan, Michigan State, you know, yeah. the, the schools that had great basketball yeah. teams. Not that I was ever going to play basketball, but those were the ones that I saw on yeah. TV. Yeah. But then... Um, it was Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. And we had that a tradition of attending Harvard in my father's family. My father's first cousin, George Lee, actually graduated from Harvard Law School yeah. in 1949, the year before I was born. And his wife, Dorothy Hicksley, got her PhD in comparative literature from Harvard in 1955. So they were held up as the, you know, you can imagine... Uh, you're from a culture that that privileges education, yeah. just like I am. Yeah, and they would uh, they were the touchstones for academic excellence. One day you could grow up and go to Harvard like your cousin George. Yeah, and I thought, wow, Harvard. And then I was watching TV, and smart kids went to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. Right, that, yeah. that became a metaphor. Then they went to Oxford or Cambridge. So by the time I was in, say, ninth grade, yeah, I had a deep desire to go to the Ivy League, get a Rhodes Scholarship, and then go off to England. That was what my fantasy, of, and you know, as not a, as a doctor. And well, I was going to be a doctor, the road scholar, but doctor. I was going to do that and then come back. <laughs> and um, be careful what you wish for, yeah. right? I ended up graduated from Yale, and then I went got a fellowship to go to the University of Cambridge, where yeah. I got my master's degree and my PhD. And to my astonishment, on June twenty second, 
uh, my alma mater awarded me an honorary degree, which is the first African-American male. I'm the second African-American in the history of Cambridge with over 800 years to get an honorary degree. My friend Jesse Norman, who's left us. Yeah. Uh, Jesse Norman was the first in 1989, and I was the second. This was the, one of the greatest honors of my life to be yeah. honored by the place where I That's where amazing. I so my father, um, my father's father yeah. had three sisters okay and uh, my father was born on the gates farm 200 yeah. acre farm my grandfather worked that farm yeah with his father edward gates and his wife maude and edward's born 1857 yeah um my grandfather's born 1879 my dad was born in 1913 my dad was born on the gates farm at the turn of the century yeah my great grandparents did something so extraordinary that i still can't process it they kept the son on the farm, the oldest child of five, and sent the three girls to college. Can you imagine? Huh. And a black family. Yeah. They sent my three great aunts to Howard University. Yeah. One became a nurse, and the other two became teachers. And one married a dentist, one married a pharmacist, yeah. and one married a sign painter. And so my brother is the third generation dentist in the extended Gates, Gates family. <laughs> so without affirmative action, I would have gone to Howard. Um, but what affirmative action did was open up historically white universities so that people like me could fairly compete. People yeah. forget that's what affirmative action did. So why would I say we're the affirmative action generation? Because the class of 66 at Yale had six black guys to graduate. The class that hit New Haven in September 69 with me, had 96 black men and women. So what was the mark, a genetic blip in the race? And right. all of a sudden there are 90 smart black kids who existed in 69 who hadn't existed before. No, yeah. affirmative action lifted a racist quota that had obtained at Yale and Harvard and, and God knows Princeton for a long, long time. So there were only six in 65, 64, 63. But as a scholar, when you're there, like I have to assume that you know in the 60s, you know, when you start Yale, how, you know, when did you start? 69. I mean, everything's coming apart. It was the Wild West days of revolution. Yeah. We went on strike at, in the second semester for the Black Panthers. Right. Bobby Seale yeah. was on trial in the New Haven courthouse a block from Calhoun College where my dorm was. But did you go? To the, I was on. I was secretary of the Black Student Organization. So yeah, I had no choice. <laughs> I was terrified, baby. The Black Panthers were around. We had the Black Panthers. We had the Black Muslims. We had the cultural nationalists. It was wild. So, I'd like to write a novel about it. What, so what? Where did you find yourself? You know, uh, in in the middle of all that. I mean, you know what it made me realize? What it made me realize? I hated bullies. Yeah. I hated ideological bullies. Yeah, I hated people who would tell you that you weren't black enough, hmm. that you weren't the authentic thing, you weren't the real deal. And I guess they all kind of did that. They all did that unless you subscribe to their their doctrines, right? Right. And I was lucky because I had um, a strong nuclear family yep. and um, a deep, deep roots in this funny little community um, of black people in the hills of West Virginia. Yeah. And I knew myself and I it was, a, a challenge because there were forces saying you're not black unless you remember this is the period of black power sure 
and so I had an afro. Mm-hmm. Black is beautiful. Yeah. You were doing all the right things. We were doing all the right things. <laughs> I, I became. I volunteered to be the secretary of the Black Student Organization. So I, so I wouldn't have to say anything. Yeah, I was just taking notes, so I could watch the sort of landscape of blackness that was unfolding. And was around it me. was it was it actively debated all the time? All the time, man. Yeah, and, and somebody was always jumping in somebody's face and right. saying, "Unless your afro is two feet high, you're not black enough. Unless you got a closet of dashikis." Unless you're learning Swahili, whatever, yeah. you know, I call them the litmus tests of blackness. But what's interesting to me in, in, in hearing you talk about that is that, you know, a lot of that stuff was of the time and was it was specifically uh, identity driven, whereas it seems that your life's work has been to to incorporate the art, the work, the literary work of 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 black writers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into the the respect that that the white canon gets so like it was it was not about the uh uh sort of ideas about blackness ideologically mm-hmm. but about the full spectrum of of black scholarship oh absolutely i um realized very quickly i never was going to be a, a member of a party yeah <laughs> i'm just not made that way i'm too cynical i'm too skeptical and too independent i want to be a fly on the wall. I want uh-huh. to write about a political rally. I don't want to be in the political. But where rally. did you? But when you were pressed at that time, you, you know, did you did you speak up? Yeah, I had an afro. Okay, but I never, um, ever, uh, was embarrassed about having white friends. I had a white girlfriend my sophomore year. I never. My, my friend Eddie Jackson was in love with the, um, an Irish American woman who was a, a student at Albertus Magnus College, which is the Catholic girls school up the street uh-huh. in New Haven. And he was bullied and he gave up the love of his life and he never got over it. He never, I mean, he actually committed suicide years oh later. Oh my God. And I'm, I will go to my grave believing that one of the reasons that Eddie did that was that he could never live with himself for cutting loose the love of his life. And I was determined nobody was going to tell me how to be black. But, and you know what? In my lecture course, yeah. my lecture course ends, my section of the lecture course, I always end my lecture this way. Yeah, I structured this course around the experience I had at Yale so that every week the students uh, learn about a debate yeah. that black people have had in the black community about what it means to be black yeah. starting in the 18th century. And the so the moral of the story is there never was one way to be black. And I uh, make, in my last lecture, I say there four, if there are 42 million African-Americans, that means there are 42 million ways to be black. Never let a bully tell you how to be black. You're here at Harvard because you're a special person, you're gifted. And most of my students are white. I mean, all the black kids take the class, but yeah. overwhelming, you know, we got 150 kids, we yeah. can't have 150 black kids at Harvard. Right. <laughs> so it's still. Uh, and I say, each of you is special. And even if you're not black, if you're Jewish, don't let somebody tell you there's one way to be Jewish. If you're from um, China, yeah. don't let someone tell you, tell you that there's one way to be Asian American, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a metaphor. But the reason that I have this sense of stubbornness about protecting the individuality of your identity is because the experiences I had at Yale and because the secure background that I had at home. My dad, when when I got into Yale, my parents bought me a new car because they thought 
all the rich white kids had cars. I got up there, man. I, I was the only kid I knew who had a car. Yeah. I had a new Royal Electric typewriter, all new clothes, of course. But my mother was, uh, you know, seamstress, yeah. so we always, you know, had new clothes, always had new textbooks, et cetera. And my father um, packed up the car, and I drove up there by myself. But my father, right before I left, said, um, he said, I would give you three bits of advice. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. At, at this time, this is September 69, news about the black table in the Ivy League was hitting Time Magazine because he's the um, historically white institutions like Harvey and Yale were opening up because of the pressure of affirmative action. But to everyone's surprise, the black kids were all sitting together in the cafeterias, right? It was called the black table. Yeah. My father said, don't go up there sitting in sitting along with all these black kids at the black table. Yeah. He said, you're going to Yale, not Howard. You know, yeah, like yeah. go up there. He said, and don't go up there and getting black roommates. Don't go up there. It, it, black people call it Jim Crowing yourself. <laughs> he said, don't go up there, have a black roommate. You know what he said? You're, you're going to love, no, you got to hear that. He said, yeah. I said, well, what, what kind of roommate should I get, daddy? He said, get a Jewish guy. Yeah. He said, they've been good to our people. Might learn something. <laughs> <laughs> this is funny. And then, and then he said, and for Christ's sake, don't go up there studying nothing called black study. He said, because your ass has been black for 18 years and I ain't paying for that. <laughs> so here's what I did. This is, I want you to know what a dutiful son I am. Every lunch I ate at the black table. I had three black roommates, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. though I didn't major in, in Af Afro-American studies, yeah. as, it called Yale, as it was called at Yale, every semester when I could, I took a course of black content because I was, I took the first course in Afro-American history that I was ever exposed to as soon, my first semester. Who's the teacher of that? William McFeely, a white guy who subsequently got the Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Ulysses S. Grant. And everybody black took that course. There were a couple hundred of us in there, plus a lot of white kids. And I was riveted. And every fact that I read, every story that I heard just stuck to me like glue. Yeah. And so I developed this, almost this skin yeah. of um, African and African-American studies you know things just stuck to well, me well it's interesting though like what you say about you know what your father said because even in the in in the well, i don't remember which episode of of the doc it, that you know there are arguments now that the black community makes about maintaining and staying in a black space yes that's right that that your father was saying like you know you've done that right you know it's time to to go out and see the other the world right but now that they're they're still there there's I, the entire documentary seems to be about what what black communities and black people did in in the shadow of ongoing w racism behind the veil yeah. as the boys put it but there's a difference between enforced segregation yeah enforced separation sure. yeah. and willing association right um, it's a funny thing, an interesting chapter in our history. Right after Brown v. Board yeah. um, was announced by the Supreme Court, yeah. there were a group of the leaders of, of the black community organized. Uh, Ralph Ellison, the great novelist, yeah. tells this story. That he was called to a meeting in New York. Or he lived in New York. And he was dispatched to Tuskegee, where he'd been a student, to tell the people that they were soon going to go out of business, that all black schools were going to go out of business because they only existed because of segregation, and they were there was going to be no need for them. And now you look back and laugh, but enrollment applications to black schools have never been higher because people have chosen to associate with other black people and to 
participate in historically black institutions willingly because they embrace the culture. Look, I think the model for that is the Jewish community where you can you know, observe the Sabbath, you can observe the high holy days, yeah. but be fully integrated into American uh, society. That you can be both. You can celebrate your Jewish identity, either religiously or not, yeah. and but certainly culturally, yeah. and be thoroughly integrated into the American economy and American culture. Well, th- that's what struck me about the, the, the stuff in the documentary, because it's stuff I didn't know, that, that the idea that there was a, a schism in the black community around you know trying to be to appease the whites by acting like them right but 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 really you, you know in in what you you sort of set out in in the documentary to show is that you know building businesses building fraternal orders building banks right. building uh you know a varying degree of entrepreneurship you know was not trying to be white this is how the country worked right absolutely and we were excluded from um, the white examples, right. the white instances of those. So what did we do? Did we sit around and just wring our hands? Did we sit around and cry and complain? No, we replicated the world from which we were excluded, just like Jewish people did. They, they couldn't go to, <laughs> yeah. to white country, I mean, WASP, sure. the, goi, yeah, go, yeah. the goi country yeah. clubs of the Goyim. Yeah. They did the Catskills, right? Yeah, and, sure. and a thousand one other examples of that. But look, but, my but, three generations of dentists in, in the Gates family, yeah. The first two generations couldn't join the American Dental Association. So what did they do? They formed the National Dental Association. The black doctors couldn't join the AMA. They formed the National Medical Association. Black lawyers, like my cousin, graduated from Harvard Law School, couldn't be in the American Bar Association. They formed the National Bar Association. National, like the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, yeah. National Coded for Black. Isn't that cool? Yeah. You couldn't be in the American one, but you could be in the National one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a, it, but it, it's fascinating to me to 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 know that you know I mean like I I panic about the nature of of our our, our system mm-hmm. now right and you you're friends with Barack Obama and you know you went through your own issues around I mean a very well publicized arrest at your own house. <laughs> the worst day of my life. Yeah. <laughs> I do not I do not recommend arrest for anybody. <laughs> but it was interesting in, in that when they talk about the reconstruction, when they talk about this idea of a multiracial democracy or or a biracial at the time democracy, that when you you see that all these other communities thriving within uh, social uh, within democracy and capitalism that there is, a, is still a separation there but that there is sort of the opportunity on some level mm-hmm. but but do you think in in your experience and in your studies that uh, that multiracial democracy is working oh yeah i think that well it's it's very complicated it's it's um, to see uh, Donald Trump waiting in the wings yeah. might give one pause, right? Right. But my wife, who's Cuban, yeah, a Cuban citizen, yeah, um, a, a professor, yeah. like me, um, says to all my friends whenever we're complaining, yes, but you can throw them out. You still have the right to. Donald Trump can get elected. Yeah. Donald Trump can be thrown out. I think that we have to remember that that we do live in a in a democracy and a multiracial coalition elected Barack Obama. Yeah. There was a backlash against Obama um, as a black man, without a doubt. And remember I said there were two streams always running under the floorboards of American culture. That 
force is called white supremacy. Yeah. And the, having a black man in the White House choom, triggered those four. That beast, which was slumbering, many of us thought it had been banished, came roaring out of the floor. And a lot of people were freaked out, in part because, ultimately, economics. Why do I say that? Because many of the people I grew up with yeah. who based their sense of being an American yeah. on an idea of progress that was infinite. Yeah. They would work start in the labor pool at the paper mill. Then they'd get promoted to the craft unions. Right. When you made good money, you know, as a plumber or a, an electrician or whatever, you send your kids to college, the kids would come back, maybe be an engineer, work in the paper mill too. Buy a bigger house. Yeah. You buy a house, you know, yeah, work sure. your way up. Yeah. Um and so and then your kids' kids, your grandkids they would go to college. Maybe yeah. they'd be a doctor. You know, maybe sure. they'd be a lawyer. That fiction of infinite upward mobility is over, and um, a lot of people don't know how to deal with that. What is the new narrative? How are we going to make sure that the world is better economically for our grandkids? The paper or mill's even gone. there. Yeah, the paper mill's gone. Yeah. Literally in my hometown, there was nothing else there but that paper mill. What is it like there now? It's like a ghost town. Like instead of twenty five hundred people when I was born, there are, I think eight hundred people in the last census, and there are people who just will never ever leave. But you know, with, with this idea though, like maybe I'm cynical about you know you can just vote somebody out as as these. You know, as not not unlike the school boards, there, there's a certain strain of uh, uh, of uh, religious fascism. I think that is it, it, you know kind of radicalizing some state legislatures. Oh my God! And more importantly, is the voter suppression. Yeah, the Reconstruction ended because of voter suppression. Um, let me give you a little background. Until 1910, 90 percent yeah. of the African American people lived in the former Confederacy. Yeah, and get this. South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana were majority black states. Right. Georgia, Alabama, and Florida were almost majority black states. Give black men the right to vote. Remember, only men had the right to vote. Yeah. That's called black power, baby. Yeah. And so the black men in the former Confederacy got the right to vote because of the Reconstruction Act in 1867. And Mark, when they voted, they elected the president in 1868. Ulysses S. Grant won the Electoral College overwhelmingly, but he only won the popular vote by about just over 300,000 votes, 500,000 black men yeah. voted in the general election of 1868. And in South Carolina, which was ground zero for black power, the whole, the state legislature, the House of Representatives was majority black. Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State were all black. Holy mackerel. And the way they shut down Reconstruction most effectively, most devastatingly, was to take away the right to vote. And starting in 1890, with what was called the Mississippi Plan, each of the former Confederate states ratified a new state constitution. And without using the word black or Negro, as we were then, or race, they effectively took away the right to vote of these black men throughout the South through poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses. You want to know how effective it was? Take Louisiana. In 1898, there were 130,000 black men registered to vote in the state of Louisiana. After Louisiana ratified their new racist, re re redemptionist constitution, mm. by 1904, that number had been reduced precisely 1,342. That is voter suppression. And that's what we see today. And that's what we have to fight against. Yeah. Because if 
people of color have the right to vote protected, there won't be a, a return of Donald Trump. The Republicans know this, which is why they're doing all this rope-a-dope gerrymandering to, and, and trying to, uh, in various ways, suppress the right of people of color to vote so that th- they can win in these uh in the relevant but, but now the language of of the GOP is is blatantly white supremacist. Yeah, it seems that way to me. And and it, that what what you were saying that you we used to you know think it was under you know it was uh, underneath the surface. Now not only is it out, but it's it's shameless. Well, Donald Trump just lifted up the floorboards. Sure, I get it. You know, I, someone asked me the other day. Did I, at, when Donald Trump was elected, mm. I was interviewed, of course, and now they said, do you think he's a racist? And I said, well, I don't know the man. Yeah. I don't know what's in his heart. So I'm prepared to give him the benefit of sure. the doubt. Is he racist now? Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't know if he's, <laughs> I don't know. But, but it's important for me to say this. I don't know if he's a racist like Orville Faubus was a racist or George Wallace was a racist. Now, in a sense, it doesn't matter. But those guys were born racist. I mean, they just hated black people. I think Donald Trump is an opportunistic racist. Yeah. In the end, it still makes him a, a racist. But he saw that he could stir up all of these buried sentiments yeah. and unleash them and uh, profit from the people who believe those things. Yeah. He could tap into, fe- instead of assuaging people's fear, yeah. which Obama sought to do, of the Republicans wouldn't let him do it, but he sought to do that. Obama really thought that he could be a healer, and he wasn't. He was very divisive, very because the, these uh, people in the grip of white supremacy yeah. were terrified. Yeah, and they said, "Jesus, they've taken over." I mean, God, they've taken over the White House. What, what's the next? <laughs> and despite the man's best efforts, um. He he could not become the figure of healing and reconciliation that we all thought he would. But be. you you believe it was still a successful presidency? Oh yeah, absolutely. He did as well as he could. Yeah. I mean, when you have the Speaker of the House give a press conference and say we're going to do everything we can to see that he fails, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. or the uh, majority leader of the Republicans in the Senate say, you know, we are going to undermine this guy. Day by day, and they did that for eight years. But but it, but it still doesn't uh, take away the fact that it was pretty amazing that he was president. It was America, <laughs> America at its finest. Yeah. elected Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> America at its worst elected Donald Trump. It's like a joke. It's like satire. Yeah, it is. It's it, but it's like it it's, it causes me a tremendous amount of stress every day. Uh, yeah, well, you? Yeah, it worries me. But I'm uh, I'm constructed fundamentally around um, the uh, embrace of optimism. I believe that uh, the American people are decent people. A lot of the kids I grew up with, went to high school with, yeah. told me the summer before the election yeah. with Hillary yeah. that they were going to vote for uh, uh, Donald Trump and that he yeah. was going to win. When every summer my wife and I spend uh, two months on Martha's yeah. Vineyard, which I love. Yeah. And uh, the seven women whom I met on the first day of first grade oh, yeah. in Piedmont, West Virginia, yeah. in August 31st, 1956, yeah. they come and spend four days with us yeah. on the vineyard. Right. Six white girls and one, I call them girls because I met yeah. them when I was sure. six. Again. Yeah. Women. Yeah. And all of them, almost all of them voted for Donald Trump. So I know that Trump had a lot of people who, who, were not, uh, who supported him who were not racist because uh, they aren't racist. 
they voted for him because they um, they felt that there was no hope. Yeah. They felt that there was too much corruption. Yeah. They they saw him as a populist. Right. Cornell West and I did a huge event on Friday at Loyola Marymount. Twelve hundred people came. Just now. Mm-hmm. And he had a brilliant. I was interviewing him. I'm yeah. doing a series of conversations at Loyola Loyola Marymount. Yeah. Of this year, and um, just three. Yeah. I started with Cornell, my dear friend, and he talked about. That Donald, how Donald Trump appealed to populist instincts. Yeah. But the history of populism in America goes two ways. Either it goes toward a, a liberal democratic ideal, the best of us, yeah. or the white supremacist underbelly, yeah. the worst of us. Yeah. Donald Trump took it right that way into the bowels, the depths of white supremacy, yeah. the worst of us. And he did it consciously and he was very effective at it. But still, we beat him. And we beat him. In the but polls. how do you feel about those people? I think they're frightened. Mm. And, and you still socialize with them every year? Oh, you mean um, yeah, your friends? My, yeah. They're my best friends. Yeah. Look, they knew me when I was six years old. <laughs> but I would never turn but against. I, but, them. but how? Listen, the only way I'd ever turn against one of my friends for remember to go back to my. What was my crucial shaping experience? It was Yale yeah. being surrounded by ideological bullies. Right. Right. So I never judge. Never judge my friends on their ideology. If you put on a Klan suit and we're burning crosses on my lawn, that might we might have to talk. You know, right. friendship. Might but, end. but don't you? But yeah, as a as a uh, intellectual person, do I? I mean, I don't know to what degree their belief was, but it seems that 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 propaganda and and misinformation. Uh, uh, and, and certainly conspiracy theories now seem to to corrupt a good deal of, of relatively good people's brains. Well, I think that with my friends, they thought that the lives of their children and grandchildren yeah. would be better if Donald Trump was president. Okay. They had an, I don't want to have to defend them because yeah. I have no idea why anybody could be fooled by Donald Trump. But that's why they voted for him. They didn't okay. vote for him because they were racist. I know these people. I love sure. them. They sleep in my house. I mean, yeah. we're, I, yeah. I know them like the back of my hand. That's why we have to be subtle in our analysis. Yeah. Because if we just demonize yeah. people that we disagree with, right. if we underestimate their complexity, we'll never, well, we'll never reach them. Well, tell me, what you, when you got arrested, what year was that? I can't remember. Okay. Well, you don't want to talk about it? No, you're done I would with rather that. Not, yeah, I'm. I've turned that page. Okay, you know. Yeah, I, I just was like in in talking about the the learning moments in terms of transcending ideology or or at least giving some kind of uh, uh, empathy towards what appears you know blatantly insensitive or racist that you you know you were you were able to do that. Well, I didn't want to ever actually or appear to profit from an event that I thought was an aberration. Mm -hmm. So I, what, imagine me as a poster boy for police brutality. Yeah, That's not. ridiculous. Yeah, of you course. Know, I'm yeah, a privileged yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. I was in the jail within um, an hour. Yeah. Uh, it was full of Harvard professors and even the legal counsel yeah. of the university. Yeah. Everybody realized they made a mistake. They just had to figure out how to get out of it. And then here comes Barack to the rescue, yeah. bringing us down for a beer. Yeah. The whole point was designed to make it go away. Yeah. So, uh, But it did make me very, very sensitive to um, the abuse of the police and prison reform. Mm. And I'm a passionate uh, advocate of prison reform, and I, I participate in... A program att attempting to get books to prisoners. Sure, 
It's very difficult to get books to print. It? it should be very easy. It's yeah. getting it's getting difficult to get books to students. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, my, one of my books has been banned in Texas, and guess what? It's a chronology. <laughs> All it is is a listing of 500 years of African American history from the first black man to set foot on the North American continent, Juan Garrido, who was a free black man, a conquistador, mm. until you know through Obama. And that book has been banned. But I mean, that's wait, crazy. So, but what do you make of that, man? I mean, it's like... It you turns have... my stomach, makes me want to vomit. My fundamental principle is that any form of censorship, including cancel culture, is offensive. Censorship in all of its hideous forms is to art and free expression as lynching is to justice. And if you think of the two things that way... It allows you to, you know, understand that you should never tolerate any form of censorship. But but this seems to be completely uh, uh, to 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 program or reprogram young people around a very specific uh, uh, idea of history. Absolutely, and it's designed to whitewash to, to whitewash the history of the, of the American people. And we have to fight against that. Look, my whole career has been based on integrating the curriculum. Right. Establishing the black presence, as you said, within the canon of American literature and world literature on the one hand, and our presence within the weave of American history. Because American history has always been about race and race relations from the get-go. But you, you but, can't tell American history without tell, talking about the history of race. Right, but it, it just seems that, like, you know, that the telling of that history as a progressive person mm-hmm. and as somebody who has seen the arc of, of, of some progress, mm-hmm. have we've now arrived at seemingly the worst possible manifestation of it. But at the same time, I'm a consultant with Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham to the college board, and we have the first AP course in African-American studies. So that means that um, we're about to experience a revolution in the teaching of African-American studies uh, in the schools through all, you know, all the kids who take AP courses. What's AP? Advanced placement. Okay. You know, so you could take a course in AP history. So you got to be gifted to know the truth? So that you, (laughs) (laughs) well, unfortunately, um, it is incumbent upon all of us who love freedom and the history of democracy in this country to fight any attempt to censorship. Any, all these school boards, we have to take them on. But that's, I can't just write an op-ed page piece for the New York Times. We're talking about fighting at the granular I know. I, I, I mean, I get fighting. it. But, but like it used to be censorship was based on some, you know, uh, somewhat vaguely moral idea about Christian values. And now it seems to be thoroughly uh, rooted in white supremacy. Oh, it is. It is about whitewashing you know, the I complex yeah. history. Look, nobody, you know this, I sit every week. I have the po- most popular show, nonfiction series yeah. on PBS. Yeah. Every week I have to tell people uncomfortable things about their past. Yeah. I don't judge them. I don't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, Christopher Walken, I did his family tree. Two brothers, <clears throat> bakers. Yeah. German. Yeah. One comes to the United States. Yeah. One stays home. Yeah. Well, guess what the one is doing who stayed home in Germany? I turn. He turns a page, and there, there he is in a yeah. Nazi uniform. Yeah, I don't do that to make him feel bad. Did he? Um, I. Th- he said that he naturally assumed. Yes. That <laughs> yeah. family stayed in Germany. What was he going to do? Conscientious objection. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. 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 But the point is not to make people feel bad. It is to talk about the complexity 
of I know, world but, but, history. But, but like, and I appreciate that. And I was talking to my producer this morning about taking in the information in in your new series, the Making Black America. I mean, you know, I I don't I don't know the the specifics about a lot of things. I know where my heart is, but it was all new to me, right? And you know, and I had you know I had a, a, a great uncle and aunt who were American communists, and I had the 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 entire collection of W. E. B. Du Bois, uh, yeah, uh, of all his writing, right? That's and they great. yeah, and they had they used to you, you know I've got free Angela buttons, <laughs> you know. So you're a red diaper baby, kind of. Well, uh, by virtue. Virtue of that, my I, right. I was exposed to it, yeah. but still my 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 knowledge, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there as a 59 year old guy who who's hungry for information and having these realizations, watching your series and watching Ken Burns' series about the nature of this country, and then I'm realizing alongside of that that this is exactly this information, not 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 the history of slavery, right. but the history of the black experience mm-hmm. in this country is exactly what they're saying cannot be taught. But that's why it's incumbent upon people like Ken people like me, people like Stanley Nelson. Right. It's incumbent upon us to keep telling the story. All right. Over, you know, there's an sure. old hymn. Yeah. I love to tell the story <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. of Jesus yeah, and but what if the, But what if it's false? I love to tell the story of the American people and the African-American people, and whether it's uh, the African experience on the continent, in Europe, or in the New World. And you know what? As long as I have an outlet through PBS, I'm going to keep telling okay. that story. Well, I appreciate and I reach that. millions of people. I know. Millions of people. Okay. And I know because they stop me on the street and talk to me all the time. But do you ever reach people? Do they stop you on the street and say, like, you know what? I was a monster. And now I'm not. No. I've never had that experience. But I'd like to... Th- but I've had experience when people say... I mean, what kind of person is going to say, oh, I was a monster, no, I'm not. But I've, I've had, had... Recovering monster. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have not had the pleasure yet. All right. But I have had, over and over, people with making America Great Again hats on, yeah. T-shirts, or Donald Trump, stop me and say, I don't like your politics, but I love your show. And I go, well, that's good enough for me, brother. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, I, I, I hear they that. They said, can I have a photo? I said, of course you can. I'm not going to set myself up as an ideological bully. I don't think that you, when you're interviewing someone for a job, okay, you, you how many people on your staff, your, on your crew? Just me and my producer. Okay, would you ever ask your producer who she voted for? Yeah. <laughs> I would, we, I have 16 people okay. who work for the Hutchinson. Yeah. I have no more idea how they vote them. I presume that they voted for Obama and I presume they voted for Biden. But I would. Ne- it's none of my business. No, I get that. I I, I get that, Professor. But what what, <laughs> what what I don't, what I have a hard time sort of, and I appreciate your optimism, and I also appreciate that you're doing what you do to do the what you think is important, and, and to to educate, and to hopefully uh, shed light on on a truth. I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just I guess I'm stuck in in an ideology or in, in a point of view where I'm like, well, it's never going to be enough. Right. And and I you know maybe- but I need you. You need people like me, and I need people like you. Yeah, we need people pushing, protesting. You need people like me inside the institution. I heard David Remnick use a, a metaphor at Clifford Alexander's memorial service. One of my heroes. Yeah, f- first black secretary of the army. Yeah, under Jimmy Carter and Remnick, you know the editor yeah. of um, know New Yorker, guy. said you know you need people inside the castle lo- lowering the sure the bridges across yeah. the moat. I get as it. well as people storming uh, the gates outside the castle. I get it. And my role 
is to be inside the system <laughs> fighting for change. This is, the, as I discussed with Cornell, this is the second front in the history of American culture wars for our yeah. generation. The first was in the 90s. Yeah. And we were busy trying to get black authors like Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison into the Norton Anthology of American Literature. Okay, we did that. Yeah. So what, what's happening uh, 20 years later? Now they're trying to ban the anthologies that we integrated. So, that, you know, it's ironic if you think about it. The second set of culture wars is about banning the textbooks that we successfully integrated in the 1990s. So, and how, how ironic is that? Well, it's ironic, but how does it make you feel? It makes me feel like we got to fight harder. We have to fight to keep those textbooks from being banned. No textbook should be banned. I get that. And we have to fight but to keep telling the truth of American history. But they, right. Okay, there you go. But I mean, curriculum can be decided. You know, like, you know, it's like it, there's a, a, a fine line between banning and saying like, well, we're not teaching that in the curriculum. That's true. And until we take on the, the school boards in uh -huh. Texas and places where. So do you got the, you got the, you got the, do we have the horses to do this? Who are these people? Absolutely. We have people fighting at every level. Okay. Just regular people who want their All kids right. to be exposed to the complexity of the reality that that has shaped who we are, but you have forces against. The, those are the people who really need to be celebrated and praised. The people who are fighting at the granular level, the people who are fighting at it's the level so, of the school board. Of course, but it's just it, to me, it's like you know, because I work in you know, I'm a comedian, I, and I see that there's a schism in comedy around tribalization and anti woke and woke and whatever you want to do. What, but but that all that stuff is a lot of it's bullshit, right? You know, it, a lot of it is masking. Uh, like when you get down to the ground, annual level most people don't even pay attention to that news that, that's true they don't so like they're just caught up in this sort of like cortisol driven you know argumentative you know you're wrong you're woke i'm you know anti-woke whatever that the, look censorship from the left is no, the, just as pernicious as censorship I get, on the I, right I, i'm not I'm, cancel culture is just as offensive to me as censorship is. Sure. Because it's just another form of censorship. I get that. I get that. But like both of those sides, you know, right. you, you know is, is servicing something you know, much more nefarious. It is. And that's why we have to stand up against both, no matter what form it takes. No matter censorship. One of the most important shaping experiences of my teenage yeah. years, my parents, <laughs> get this, gave me a subscription to Playboy magazine when I was 15 years old. And I actually... Of course, I looked at the picture, but I actually read the interviews, yeah. too. I fell in love with Lenny Bruce. Yeah. Lenny, I never heard of Lenny Bruce. Yeah. And I, I, 15, I, we're in Piedmont, West Virginia. I couldn't yeah. even go to hear, hear his uncensored um, routines, right? Sure. A comedy club. Yeah. But I, I just was so inspired by the way he fought censorship that his use of profanity is talking about I, drugs. And I, I, I get all that, but my point around the censorship is like all censorship is bad, okay? But sometimes there's consequences to what one says, yeah. and it's up to you to decide whether you're going to say it. That yeah, that's true, and and, and that's a reality. That's a, that's a reality, and, and that's the way. Unfortunately, in. It, because of social media and other things that there and it's it's happened on both sides mm -hmm. you know there if somebody on tv said something that the christians didn't like they'd mobilize uh, a, an entire army of people to write letters but and that's say, called like, that's called democracy i get it democracy right. yeah right and that happens on both sides too right but i think that when you have people that are servicing uh an, uh, an ideology mm -hmm. that is ultimately uh uh 
perhaps racist or questionable, mm-hmm. that they might not know that. But if they can be appropriated, if you got a comic that's servicing an anti woke agenda, and then you got Tucker Carlson quoting that comic, and then you you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene sort of you know taking that joke out of context and put, you know doing it at a rally, then that would make me, if I were the person telling the joke reflect on that's right what i'm saying right right but i don't want anybody to be able just to tell them what i'm no. saying is that there's a lack of reflection right a lack of reflection <laughs> and that's no if i i have taken okay i'll give you an example yeah um there's a lot of controversy over um woman king because i saw that yeah and i i really i like viola davis yeah. a lot but dahomey there was the <laughs> dahomey was one of the worst slave kingdoms on the African continent. They did not rebel against the slave trade. Uh-huh. because They did defeat Oyo, the kingdom of Oyo, yeah. when it says. Right. But they continued with alacrity to conquer other people and sell them. Yeah. That's very important. But when I did, it's very important to tell the story truthfully. Yes. Not to you know, okay. put rose-colored glasses on the way they do in that movie. Okay. But when I told the story of the African role in the slave trade, yeah. the PBS docu- documentary in 1998, yeah. people in the black community, I mean, Ali Missouri, who was a scholar, gave a, a speech in which he said, I suppose we should not issue a fatwa against Gates. Because they said that I was lying about the African role in the slave trade. Here's a fact. Overwhelmingly, the our African ancestors who were shipped across the ocean were captured in wars by other black people on the African continent. We were raised to think that white, your white ancestors, yeah, yeah. somehow my black ancestors were out on a picnic on a Sunday, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. And your white ancestors jumped out of a bush <laughs> and threw a net on them and they ended up in a plantation in Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. Forget it, that never happened. I mean, rarely. Yeah. Over what Historians estimate that 90 to 95% of the Africans, and I got this figure from the historian John Thornton, this footnote, that the Africans captured in the slave trade were captured by other Africans, other black people uh. in wars. There were whole economies like Dahomey constructed around the slave trade. And that's important to tell that story. But, but, but people so- tried to censor me in 1998, but now, even in that film, which had Viola Davis's kind of, uh, you know, Rosa Parks <laughs> fighting the slave trade. Um, I'm being hyperbolic, of course, but she is saying, no, we need to get away yeah, right, from selling sure. our brothers and sisters. Well, that, but that's towards the end of the movie, and it felt a little bit disingenuous. Yeah, even, I, mean, I didn't even know the, 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 the story. The, the slave trade in Dahomey went for another uh, se- series of decades uh, after so, they, so you're saying that the, they defeated Oyo. <laughs> the, the sort of uh, protecting American black identity the, the people uh, of, of the community uh, on some level were like, is it necessary that you tell that story? They said, uh, that. thank you for bringing me back, because they said in 1998, now this has all changed, because now you could see Woman King. Uh, they are open about the African role in the slave trade. They just represent Viola Davis as being Rosa Parks. Right, <laughs> you know, right. Of the they Amazon. have a problem with that. Yeah, right. But uh, in 1998, no, but they didn't want me talking about the African, and guess what they said, Mark? What? They said, what white racist is gonna use that against us? That's right, okay. You are telling a secret, Yeah. and you don't have a right to tell that secret, because it will be used against it. And sure enough, right-wing people did quote um, my series and the book of Wendy. But too bad, it's a fact, I can't whitewash history. It's better for us to know 
how or blackwash history. I can't blackwash this. <laughs> it's better for us to know the history of the slave trade and to know ultimately that, it's better that African elites were just as evil and as corrupt but, but, as European elites. Right, and I but I think the point is, you, you, so you're bringing it down to this is this is a. Uh, a human reality. A human reality. Okay. Why should and, why should black people be less complicated? But, but I get it. And but, less screwed but, up than everybody else. But but I I, <laughs> but I understand that, and I think it's it's uh it's uh it's important for me to hear that in the sense that because there is something that you know when you get involved with a cause, whatever it is, and you think it's righteous. Right. Uh, okay. So which we've both been, and, and I think we're on the same side of things. Of course. That that there is this idea. It's sort of like, well, you know, if if, if you say that, you know, we're going to lose some points here, and, right. and we're right on the precipice of 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 something. Is it that important? Yeah. Do you have to tell the truth about? Do you have to the tell, whole truth? Do, do you, you have, have to, to tell the whole truth? Do you have to tell the whole truth about how? 12.5 million Africans were shipped across the Atlantic Ocean. And I said, yes, even if you're going to issue a fatwa against me. And I took them all on. All these black nationalists yeah. and these radicals who said that I was betraying a racial secret. And the person who defended me was Wally Shainka, the greatest uh, African writer in the history of the continent, yeah. who the first African to get the Nobel Prize yeah. in 1986, yeah. who happened to have been my professor at Cambridge, and who is with Anthony Appia, my kid's godfather. Yeah. And he took him up. Man, it was like the cavalry coming to the rescue. <laughs> I stood behind him. I go, kick your ass, Wally. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because <laughs> it was terrible. That was, you know, forget being arrested. One of the worst times of my yeah. life yeah. was having so many people in my field say, you have raised the curtain on a dirty, dark secret and by doing that, you're complicitous with white racism because I told the truth about the history of the African slave trade. And I'm proud that I did it. And now that's become normalized part of the story of African history. And I, I could not, in good conscience, censor myself uh -huh. and what, say, no, uh, this was at the time when... Farrakhan and Nation of Islam were subsidizing a book called The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews. It was Jews who ran the slave trade. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Another form of, this is like a black version of the Protocols of the Elders yeah, what, of Zion. What, what is that about? How, how did that change so hard that, you know, that the Jews became the enemy of the black people? Is that so, it's a church thing, man. You know, no, I am, I was sitting, I was watching Ken Burns' this new yeah. um, series about um the Holocaust and yeah. American anti-Semitism, yeah. which we were talking about earlier. And I decided on on my list of new PBS documentaries, I did a treatment on um, the history of blacks and Jews. Yeah. And I am going to tell that story because we are natural allies. If you look at the founding of the NAACP, it was done with a cross-ethnic- Voter registration drive. Voter registration. And we need to reformulate that alliance. So I'm going to make a film about its uh, early harmonious period, the and then when it fell apart in the '60s. It fell apart in the Black Power. Black, right, right, uh, and there the were right. causes on both sides of the, of the coalition. But what, uh, but what was the foundation of it? Was it because was it the old style sort of uh, you know global conspiracy, or was it like you know slum lords, music business? Like what you know? How did the Jew get the bad rap? It was uh, well. I actually need to make a film about it to understand it in 
in but have you done any research depth. you got anything? no but i just have anecdotal evidence uh. and i've read a lot and some of the forces that you said it was a, a black activist wanting to be independent uh-huh. of the, oh, the right. people who were funding them and of their right why are we hanging around these rich jews yeah why yeah or why we're hanging around white people period well, oh yeah i think that jews got caught up in an anti you know white um ideology mm. at, because of black power uh and the black arts movement and you know but but there are aspects of the coalition still exist i'd like to see it um reformulated because we need all the allies we can get with donald trump and the right wing um we, you, people in the wings right well now you got you know kanye out there being crazy with the anti-semitism out of nowhere whatever's going on in his head yeah what, but, whatever's going on in his i know head. i get it but like but there, <laughs> but like what what are you finding within uh uh the, the 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 world of black intellectuals oh i don't find any um pernicious no 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 but i mean like what are what are the fights you're fighting within the within the within the black world now Listen, right now post obama everybody is focused on the rise of white supremacy, voter suppression, um, the January 6th uh, yeah. insurrection, yeah. and the forces that are at the heart of that. That's what we're, we're all scared to death, and we're all focused on that. At least that's what I'm focused on. Uh-huh. Also, I, one of my uh, big concerns, as I said, is prison reform. Um, but I also uh, am worried about this Supreme Court. Mm. Affirmative action, just like Roe v. Wade, I'm afraid affirmative action is going could to happen this uh, this session. It could happen this session, and I wouldn't be here without affirmative action. I'd be a doctor back in Piedmont, right? Because mm. I would have gone to Howard and I would have been pre med, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have gone to Yale and then to Cambridge and then have meet Wally Sherink and Anthony Appiah, and they tell me, "No, you're a race man. You're going to go back and be a scholar, right?" Yeah, yeah. And Toni Morrison wouldn't be in the Norton Anthology. <laughs> she would have made it. <laughs> Even without me. Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, this has been great. Thanks, man. It was good talking to you. Thanks Thank for you. doing it. You Thank feel you. good? Oh, I feel fabulous. Good. There you go. Smart guy. Exciting to talk to. Informative. Making Black America airs Tuesdays on PBS stations and is streaming on PBS digital platforms. Please uh, stay here. Hang out a second, will you? Okay, listen to me, folks. Don't forget to sign up for WTF Plus subscriptions if you want to listen to the show ad-free and have access to every single episode of WTF on your podcast app. And for full Marin subscribers, you also get weekly bonus content. Click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFPod.com and click on WTF Plus. Next week, on Monday, Jeremy Strong. And on Thursday, Ron Carter. Uh, Jeremy and I had a good conversation about acting. He's an earnest guy. He's a serious guy. I enjoyed it. Ron Carter is one of the architects of modern jazz. He's an 85-year-old jazz double bassist, and he's a genius. And he's a great contributor to all types of music uh, on on something upward of 2,200 records. It was very exciting. I got to see him in New York. I also saw Jeremy Strong on the plane to New York. So I don't know. But good talks. 
I got my shows at the Bloomsbury here in London this weekend, and the next week I'm at the Vicar Street in Dublin on Wednesday, October 26th. When I get back from Ireland, I'm in Oklahoma City at the Tower Theater on Wednesday, November 2nd. Dallas, Texas at the Majestic Theater on Thursday, November 3rd. San Antonio at the Tobin Center for the Performing Arts for two shows on Friday, November 4th. And Houston at the Cullen Theater at Wortham Center on Saturday, November 5th. Then I'm in Long Beach, California at the Carpenter Performing Arts Center on Saturday, November 12th. Eugene, Oregon at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts on Friday, November 18th. And Bend, Oregon at the Tower Theater on Saturday, November 19th. In December, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina at the Orange Peel for two shows on Friday, December 2nd. And then Nashville, Tennessee, I'm at the James K. Polk Center on Saturday, December 3rd. And my HBO special taping is at Town Hall in New York City on Thursday, December 8th. Go to wtfpod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info uh, more guitar jams now from the vault this is me and dave alvin from the blasters playing help you dream beautiful well is this seat taken would you mind some company been alone all evening Would you like to talk with me? Now do I come here often? Well you might say that I do And is someone home waiting? Honey I was just gonna ask you Cause you're the prettiest woman I think I ever seen and tonight if you let me I'd like to help you dream well you got the nicest brown eyes you still got your little girl smile you know you should have been in movies honey you say you haven't heard that in a while sound just like Faith Hill singing on the radio Do you know someplace quiet where both of us could go Cause you're the prettiest woman that I think I've ever seen And tonight if you let me I'd like to help you dream to the fire Cause I think I know what it looks like When you get back home Baby dreaming is all that you got left And I could tell you sweet lies Like you've never heard before You see I haven't stopped dreaming yet my brother Mark.
looks like when you get back home baby dreaming is all that you got left I could tell you sweet lies like you never heard before you see I haven't stopped dreaming yet What's that? Oh, wait, what's the next line? You remember the last one? Uh, do you come here often? No, no, no. That's oh, the, oh, oh. Uh, oh, my God. Hold on. Uh, it's, uh, well, how about another drink? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, certainly. <laughs> how about another drink? What's that? You gotta go home. You say it's been nice talking. Honey, why are you leaving me alone? Cause you're the prettiest woman That I think I've ever seen And tonight, if you let me I'd like to help you dream And then he walks across the smoky bar in 1984 Sits down next to the next woman and says do I come here often? You might say that I do. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Isn't that great? That was fucking awesome.